0: You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewel Shaw, teacher, mom, and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle.
1: Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there.
0: And congratulations on getting your new teaching position, Michelle.
1: Thank you very much. Very excited about it.
0: It is extremely exciting. I know you've worked really hard for it. And uh, I'm sure you're looking forward to the next school season. I am. (laughs) In the fall. Yes. Fantastic. Today is May 22nd, 2022, and this is episode 174 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll listen to a conversation with Patrick Landaway, the modern-day keeper of Saugerties Lighthouse on the Hudson River in New York. We're recording this on May 12th, and this weekend, you and I will be doing some painting at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, right here on the New Hampshire seacoast, about 10 minutes from my home here. Uh, Are you looking forward to doing this painting this weekend, Michelle?
1: I am, Jeremy. I'm looking forward to getting back to the lighthouse and getting it in ship shape for welcoming visitors in just a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, it's creeping up on us really, really yeah, And the weather's really going to be beautiful, yeah. so... Yes, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful today. It's going to be beautiful, uh, at least through Saturday, I think. Yep. But um, anyway, so we'll get everything looking good for the season. And just to remind people, if they're going to be in our neighborhood this uh, coming spring and summer, we will have tours at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, which is in Newcastle, New Hampshire, tours by reservation only. And people can uh, reserve their spaces on our tours at uh, PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org, and uh, you and I will be there a lot of the time giving these tours. And yes. it's really nice having, I think, the small uh, private tours. I really liked yeah. doing it
1: that way last summer. It was it was mm-hmm. great to get to really know visitors that were coming and to yeah. let them have their time learning about the lighthouse and. enjoying it, enjoying it exactly. Just kind of
0: letting it soak in a little bit. There's no, you know, these tours are an hour long and I think that's a good amount of time. Uh, So
1: definitely uh,
0: anyway, looking forward to a great season. And I want to mention one more thing before we move on Uh, for anybody who is on the New Hampshire seacoast or nearby here, Southern Maine, or might be visiting the area in early June. Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses will be holding what we're calling a June Jamboree event at the Kittery Lions Club right on Route 1 in uh, Kittery, Maine. Really easy to get to. uh, And that's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Yes, it is going to be a lot of fun. We'll have music from June and the Honey Badgers and an Irish dancing show with the McDonough Grimes Irish Dance School. We'll have free pizza and refreshments as well.
0: Yeah, and we'll have a silent auction that'll include lighthouse collectibles, signed lighthouse books, and gift certificates for local businesses, among other things. The proceeds from the event will be going toward a new walkway at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse, something we need to have done. We're probably going to have that done next year, and that's going to cost at least $35,000.
1: I hope we'll see lots of our listeners at the event. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Yes.
0: So, Michelle, uh, please help me tell our listeners about Socrates Lighthouse in New York and our guest today, Patrick Landaway.
1: Sure, Jeremy. Esopus Creek meets the Hudson River at the town of Socrates, about seven miles north of Kingston and 101 miles north of New York City. The name Socrates is derived from a Dutch phrase meaning sawmill on a creek. The creek eventually powered what has been described as the largest collection of water-powered machinery in the world.
0: In June 1834, Congress recognized the need for a lighthouse at the mouth of Esopus Creek. The station was constructed at the north side of the mouth of Esopus Creek on the Saugertes Flats, which extended into the Hudson River from its west bank for about half a mile. The original lighthouse was destroyed by fire in november 1848 and was rebuilt by 1850 due to deterioration of the pier on which the lighthouse stood it was necessary to rebuild the station in the late 1860s
1: a new round granite pier 60 feet in diameter was completed in 1868 and the existing combined lighthouse and dwelling was built on the pier in 1869. the lantern held a sixth order fresnel lens showing a fixed white light 42 feet above the water. The harbor at Socrates was improved and enlarged in 1888, and access to the lighthouse was made much easier when it was connected to the mainland by a small road atop a jetty
0: katie crowley became keeper in 1873 taking over the duties from her father kate and her sister ellen uh, cared for their parents in addition to their lighthouse duties once during a squall a sloop carrying bluestone capsized on the river south of the lighthouse two crewmen were thrown into the turbulent water kate and ellen crowley swiftly launched their rowboat and through great effort and deft rowing skill the women rescued the struggling sailors
1: Over the decades, the shipping traffic and ferries disappeared from Esopus Creek and the lighthouse's navigational value faded. The light was discontinued in 1954, replaced by a small automatic light on the opposite side of the creek. The building declined into ruin in the decades that followed.
0: In 1985, a new organization, the Saugerties Lighthouse Conservancy, was formed. The organization acquired the lighthouse in the adjacent wetlands and a restoration effort soon began. More than 10,000 bricks were used to replace bricks in the tower walls that had crumbled. The mortar was formulated to match the original mortar in strength and color.
1: The lantern was removed from the tower and completely restored. The heroic efforts of the Socrates Lighthouse Conservancy climaxed with the return of a navigational light to the lighthouse on August 4, 1990, after 36 years in darkness. Today, the fully restored Socrates Lighthouse is furnished to look as it did in the early 1900s and offers year-round bed and breakfast accommodations.
0: Since the lighthouse reopened in 1991, there have been seven modern-day keepers. The latest is Patrick Landaway, who came to the lighthouse after diverse experience, including the supervision of conservation projects in remote locations. In 2011, his wife, Anna Burkheiser joined him as co-keeper. I had the pleasure of speaking with Patrick Landaway recently. Let's listen to that conversation now. I am speaking today with Patrick Landaway. Uh, who is the modern day keeper of the Sargetys Lighthouse in New York. Thank you so much for being with me today, Patrick. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So I visited there uh, back in September 2008. It's really hard to believe it was uh, 14 years ago, but I had a, a great time when I was there. I was working on a book at the time and you showed me around and I really appreciate that. So thanks again for that. Before we discuss the lighthouse and its history, I'd just like to talk a little bit about your background. It's my understanding that you have a master's degree in American studies from St. Louis University. Uh, is that Do I have that correct? That's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how did you get involved with the lighthouse?
2: A very roundabout way. I first came to the Hudson Valley to work on the Clearwater, which is the replica sloop that sails up and down the river doing environmental education. That was really the emphasis of my American studies degree. So I was, I took an interest in their program and came here to check it out and was working on the winter crew at the time. The sloop would come to Sargates to the old Marina for their annual winter maintenance. I just happened to be around when the keeper position became available and Mm -hmm. jumped at the chance. So, I jumped ship, so to speak, Uh (laughs) and landed at the Lighthouse.
0: Yeah. And it's been 20 years now, right?
2: Not quite 20 years. It's uh, I think it'll be 17 years this summer. I started in uh, 2005.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, And you live in the Lighthouse, you and your wife and son, is that right? That's correct. Seven-year-old. And you're actually speaking to me from the Lighthouse right now. Do do you live there year-round?
2: That's right. We have uh, quarters uh, just off the kitchen on the first floor uh, inside the uh, lighthouse. What was originally a more of a formal sitting room was converted to a a bedroom Mm -hmm. uh, for purposes of the bed and breakfast, which uh,
0: we operate inside the lighthouse. Yeah. And the the B&B, is is that operated year-round or or not?
2: Uh, Yes. We take guests uh, every season of the year. Even in winter, uh, we clear the path with a snowblower so people can still hike out here, and uh, we get a fire going in the old-fashioned stoves to heat up the parlor and the upstairs bedrooms.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes about the uh, what's actually there for for visitors. Uh, more about the lighthouse, but uh, what else does your job as a modern-day keeper entail? Would you say?
2: Yeah, they call us lighthouse keepers, but the job is more like innkeeper, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as groundskeeper and caretaker. We operate the bed and breakfast and keep up with a lot of the routine maintenance that the old building like this requires. And then there's the half mile access trail uh, that we're constantly tending, keeping open for the public. So yeah. a little bit of everything. It's kind of a jack of all trades uh, type of thing.
0: Yeah. Now remind me, the the light itself in the lighthouse, is it is it a private aid to navigation? Is that what it's considered? Or?
2: No, it's uh it's a Coast Guard uh, aid to navigation. It is uh, okay that still appears on navigational charts. Once a mm-hmm. year they come out and check the equipment. Uh, or if there's an issue, we call them, uh, we're right next door to the Aids and Navigation team that has, they have their station here on in the Esopus Creek right next mm-hmm. to us. So they're not too far away if there's ever any issues with the beacon, but yeah, it's an automated solar powered LED light. It is an wrong. LED now. LED. Okay. Yeah.
0: One of the typical, is it called a VLB 44, the thing with the like round stacks kind of? It looks like a donut. Yeah. Uh, is it just uh, one, one ring or is it multiple? Just one ring. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't sure what was in there these days. Uh, so, uh, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, you live there with your wife and a uh, seven-year-old son. So, uh, that's an interesting place to, to grow up, an interesting place to be a kid. What, what do you think the experience is doing for your son?
2: Well, it's definitely exposing him to the, uh, the river and the outdoors. um, There's always something interesting to see on the walk uh, to the parking lot, which he has to make twice a day to get to and from school. How long is his walk to school? Well, it's a half mile to the parking lot. And then we hop in the car and drive him Mm -hmm. uh, to school. But uh, yeah, we always have to allow extra time for the walk. And Particularly if we want to like stop and check some things out on the way, Mm -hmm. which we often do. So, yeah, it's uh, interesting for him. And and of course, it it is unique to uh, grow up in a lighthouse. His friends love to visit.
0: I (laughs) bet. Yeah. So what kinds of things you say you stop and look at things along the way? Uh, Obviously, there's all kinds of uh, nature, various aspects of nature to look at there. Is he taking an interest in uh, wildlife and other uh, aspects of nature?
2: Oh, sure. Yes. Um, We have a front row seat to an osprey nest that's atop a channel marker here at the mouth of the creek. So we watch the comings and goings of the osprey on the nest. There's a pair of bald eagles that have a nest across the river that we see, uh, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. There's a family of beavers with a lodge on the top of the old, uh, dike, uh, along the Creek. So we see them, uh, swimming out at dusk to munch on stuff along the shoreline and, uh, a lot of birds, um, and other things to see along the trail. Yeah. A fox or deer. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, occasionally we'll throw in an eel pot just to, you know, catch and look at uh, an eel or whatever else might show up. Uh, so, yeah, there, we're, we're always looking for opportunities to just explore the, the river and the shoreline. Sure. Do you ever see moose there? No, um, not. Quite this far south. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember years ago there was a very unusual sighting of a, a moose that had somehow or other made its way down here, and it made the it made local news because it was so unusual. But yeah, we don't have moose, but we have uh, white-tailed deer. Yeah, uh, occasional black bear will wander
0: through. Uh, have you had a bear on the or bears on the lighthouse property?
2: Oh sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, been quite a few years ago, but uh, uh, some guests woke up the morning, looked out their window, and there was the bear just right there at the end of the trail, uh, just one step away from the dock. The bear quickly realized that he couldn't get any further and turned around and was sighted a, a mile north of here uh, later that same day. So just passing through. They uh, <laughs> yeah. come down out of the Catskills and then hit the Hudson River and, and can't get uh, any farther. So They'll be striking out for new territory, but
0: they'll they'll crop pass through here on their way. How about otters? Do you have any of those around there?
2: It's been years since I've seen an otter, but uh, what's been most unusual until recently was there was a harbor seal that had been hanging around here for a couple of years. Uh, it showed up oh, summer of 2019, and it had a tag on it, so we were able to find out that it was uh, rescued from up in Maine and rehabilitated Mm. at Mystic Aquarium. And then when they released it, it eventually found its way up the Hudson River and kind of made a home here uh, for a while (laughs) and uh, was gone for a few months last year, but showed back up again at the end of the summer. Uh, And now we're wondering if uh, he hasn't decided to uh, strike out to new territory because we haven't seen him since New Year's Day but, yeah uh, he was a regular visitor here practically on a weekly basis would come right up and and uh very familiar with people so very entertaining you know splash around and practically putting on a show for us uh, yeah whenever it appeared so uh we're optimistic that he might show back up here again uh maybe following the the herring when they come up the river but uh yeah that's was very unusual for yeah a seal to be hanging around in fresh water for so long.
0: Right. Yeah. It seems, uh, I don't remember uh, hearing about another case like that. Uh, So I uh, read an interview with your, mentioned that you uh, have been inspired by environmental writers. So obviously that enters into your observations of nature and so forth, but are there other ways that background and that interest kind of enters into your job at the lighthouse there?
2: Well, yeah, I mean the, the lighthouse is kind of a an interesting vantage point on the river, so kind of a naturalist-sized eye view of the the river and the surroundings. There's always something to learn, so I'm often, you know, turning to uh, other writers and and naturalists to kind of learn more about what we're seeing and like to delve into the history. You know, John. John Burroughs, the uh, environmental uh, nature writer, wrote extensively about the Hudson River, and and always interesting to visit his writings to kind of see how things have changed and things have stayed the same uh, yeah. in many ways. So yeah, and there's parallels to you know other writers like Henry Beston who wrote Outermost House on Cape Cod or uh, you know Edward. Abby uh, with his Desert Solitaire or, you know, even the um, Jack Kerouac in his uh, Fire Tower uh, <laughs> uh, um, Desolation Peak out west that, you know, the job of lighthouse keepers has parallels to these other uh, jobs like Park Ranger and Fire Watchtower type mm-hmm. thing. So it's just kind of an interesting lifestyle.
0: Well, I'm sure you must feel a spiritual connection with those writers when you read those those things. So let's talk a bit about the history of the lighthouse. First of all, uh, can you explain a bit about why a lighthouse was needed there at uh, that location?
2: Sure. We're right at the mouth of the Esopus Creek, where it flows into the Hudson River. And the creek has formed a broad delta around its mouth that's uh, referred to as the Saugertes Flats. Uh, so there's shallow water all around the mouth of the creek, which was a hazard to navigation on the Hudson River. So, the lighthouse marks that shallow area for river traffic, and it also marks the entrance to the creek, which served as the harbor for Sagaties.
0: And of course, the Hudson was a, a, a major waterway uh, at its at its height. When, uh, really, can you explain maybe a little bit about why the Hudson River was such an important waterway?
2: Sure. You know, it's tidal for 150 miles of its length, so it was a, a natural port uh, in that respect, but then once the Erie Canal opened in 1825, uh, there was uh, a dramatic increase in river traffic, and that's when the lighthouse establishment started building lighthouses along the river, the first one being at Stony Point in 1828. And uh, the other lighthouses uh, following shortly thereafter. So, the first lighthouse at this location came in the mid 1830s, just 10 years after the opening of the Erie Canal. Right. The importance of the Hudson River as a port connecting the Atlantic Ocean with the interior of the continent via the Erie Canal just made it very important. As a waterway. And then also, Saugherty's was booming because they had a lot of industry concentrated on the creek. So there's a lot of local river traffic. Uh, there was an uh, ironworks, a uh, lead mill, a uh, paper mill. There's a lot of quarries in the area, uh, quarrying bluestone. There was brickworks using the river clays to make bricks. So it was a, a busy little industrial village with a lot of cargo and passengers moving in and out of the creek
0: mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit about the uh, the station itself the Sogarties light station was it a, a family light station was there like a single keeper living there with his family is that uh, the situation there
2: yes it was uh, built as a, a family station from the get-go so it's always been you know keeper and family and Often if a keeper became too old or passed away, often spouse or son or daughter would take over and which occurred in uh, several instances.
0: Including uh, Katie Crowley, right? Was a woman keeper for a while?
2: Correct, we had two women keepers. The first was a widow who took over from her husband. Uh, She lived in the the first lighthouse at this location uh, for several years and then Kate Crowley uh, she was just a young girl, when her father became blind from cataracts, so she started doing his job, and she was uh, around 16, 15, going on 16, when this new lighthouse was uh, being built, so the Crowley family spanned the era of the two lighthouses. Kate and Ellen, her sister Ellen lived here together, taking care of their aging parents, uh, looking after the light. They had quite a reputation as capable keepers.
1: I'm
0: just wondering when you're doing your job there and and living there in general, do you, in some sense, I'm not, I'm not asking you if the place is haunted, although you could, you could tell me about that if if you, if you have anything to say about that, but just do you feel the presence of these uh, keepers and families who lived there for so many years? Do you think about them when you're, you're there?
2: Yeah. We're often asked if the, Lighthouse is haunted. Uh, I've never noticed anything that would <laughs> indicate that, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, be, might not be tuned into that. Uh, if there is any presence here, it's a uh, happy and positive one. There's, there's no tragic stories uh, associated with the lighthouse. It's always been a good family situation. But yeah, I often do think of the keepers, and if there's any feeling about the place, it's just a uh, A a watchfulness there's you know a view from every room of the water and you you kind of get the sense that they were always had their eyes on the water uh, Mm -hmm. and I always find my eyes gravitating towards uh, that same thing so that just that feeling of watchfulness yeah uh, I feel like I carry with me throughout the day that uh, they likewise had and if I'm using the rowboat to row supplies back and forth, I think about how they made that same journey. You know, nowadays we have the the trail and we can hike in it out. But when the lighthouse was built, there was no connection to the shoreline, so the only way back and forth was by rowboat. So mm-hmm. whenever I am in the rowboat, it calls that to mind that uh, that's the journey that they made uh, yeah. to get supplies or get the kids to school if, if, that, if that was the case.
0: Yeah. So are there any other particular stories about keepers and families there that kind of spring to mind, things you find interesting?
2: Sure. We know quite a bit about the Crowley family because of some of the newspaper articles published about Kate and Ellen. We also know a lot about the, uh, the Hawk family. Conrad Hawk was the longest serving keeper here for 25 years in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, one of his descendants comes back uh, every year with his growing family, and they've shared uh, stories and photos that they have. So we know a little bit about life at that time, which was very much unchanged from the 19th century because there was still no electricity, no plumbing, and they still, you know, used an old uh, coal range instead of uh, modern Gas or anything like that. So the, the stories from, from their family really offer us insight into what life was like here going back to when it was first constructed because it really hadn't changed much over the, the decades. And again, it was a family living here. A son and daughter grew up here. The two kids would uh, get themselves to school in the rowboat and or skate across the ice in the wintertime. Uh, when the creek was frozen, and just some of their pastimes uh, when in their idle hours here, listening to the phonograph, or taking up a knitting project, or playing card games, uh, curling up with a book, and one of the many little nooks around the lighthouse. It kind of paints a picture of of what life was like
0: here. I remember the name Conrad Hawk, the keeper there, also from, I believe he was at if I remember right, I think Peck's Sledge Light in Long Island Sound near Norwalk, Connecticut, for a while. And I believe there was a fire when he was there. I remember reading about that where he accidentally started a fire with some greasy rags in a, in a bucket or something like that. He started the fire by accident, but he saved the place from burning down, as I remember reading. So. Uh,
2: yeah, he had a couple of offshore assignments prior to this one. So when he got this one, he was uh, inclined to stay. Because it was just a better situation all around for him and his family. Sure, uh, you know it was still a trip out on the rowboat, but it was doable, and they could be friendly with their neighbors because they actually had neighbors, <laughs> unlike a remote island right. in Long Island Sound.
0: You mentioned a few minutes ago the uh, kids walking on the ice around the light station on the uh, the creek. There does that happen anymore uh, in a typical winter?
2: We still. Uh, get ice uh, not as consistently not every winter uh, of course the Coast Guard breaks the ice now uh, right. prior to the 1930s uh, navigation would stop in the winter when the river and creek froze up and the keeper would get a break from lighting the light until the uh, ice thawed in the spring but nowadays the Coast Guard comes through and keeps the channel open but if there's enough ice, we can find an isolated bay or cove away from the channel and do some ice skating or uh, even ice boating, sailing around on the ice. So for instance, this past winter, uh, north of us at uh, Athens, near the Hudson-Athens lighthouse, uh, there the channel splits around an island and the Coast Guard breaks ice on one side, but it was frozen up on the other in the Hudson River Ice Shot Club got out their old fashioned ice boats, some of Mm. them over a hundred years old. And we did some ice sailing as well as just skating around and goofing around on the ice, you know, probably had a good, uh, I'd say eight or nine inches thick of ice.
0: Mm. uh,
2: So pretty substantial. Yeah. And that That lasted for a couple of weekends, but you know, Mm. a, a thaw and then that was, it was over by middle of February.
0: Yeah, sounds like fun. So uh, why was the light discontinued in 1954?
2: Well, it was automated at that time. All the lighthouses on the Hudson River were automated in the 1950s. So there was still a light in the tower, but they no longer required a keeper. So they uh, shuttered the building and it remained vacant. Unfortunately, without somebody living here, it started to fall into disrepair to the point where the light had to eventually be removed from the tower and replaced with a light on a post in 1972. And the Coast Guard actually was making plans to demolish it. Uh, Local folks rallied and got together and rescued the lighthouse from demolition and then went about acquiring the property from the Coast Guard in order to restore it. That effort started with the Sargentines Artists Association and they formed a lighthouse committee Uh, And that committee eventually became the Saugerties Lighthouse Conservancy, forming in 1985. Mm -hmm. And they took over the lighthouse shortly thereafter.
0: And it was was really rescued from ruin. I mean, it was, there wasn't, the structure was in really bad condition at that time, right?
2: Oh, sure. Had they waited another year, it may have entirely collapsed. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the time the lighthouse conservancy took over, it had been sitting vacant for 30 years. Uh, bricks had crumbled, water had found its way into the house, so all the floors in the first floor had rotted. Uh, one of the uh, workmen, uh, Reed Bielenberg, said he could see from the basement to the top of the tower through the holes in the floor. The tower itself, a lot of the bricks were crumbling and was starting to shear, and, you know, the weight of the lantern room on top, it was about ready to collapse. So they They caught it just in time and built a massive scaffolding to support the tower to prevent it from collapsing while they redid a lot of the masonry. And it took four years to do the major structural work and several more years to do the interior woodworking, plaster, and painting to bring it back to livable condition. So the work really got underway about 1986, 1987, and by 1990, uh, it was in good enough condition that the light was reinstalled in the tower in August of that year on National Lighthouse Day. So it was rededicated as an aid to navigation. And then it was a few more years until the bed and breakfast opened uh, after it was they finished all the interior
0: work. I don't know if you can give a percentage or anything like that, but would you say that is most of the building that stands there today, would you consider most of it a reconstruction rather than a restored building?
2: Well, they salvaged as much as the original bricks and reused them. Uh, but nonetheless, they still had to use 10,000 new bricks. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are hidden on interior walls. So from the exterior, it's uh, 90 to 99% original okay. uh, brick from the exterior. Mm-hmm. And most of the original window panes are, are still, it's all the original windows. A uh, few had to be re- reconstructed. Again, all the floors in the first floor had to be replaced, but in the upstairs bedrooms, uh, those are the original uh, floors. Uh, so I would say overall, it's probably seventy-five to eighty percent original. But yeah. um, you know, there was quite a quite a bit of work that had to go into bringing it back to uh, a livable condition. Sure. Well, and it looks course, fantastic. The big lesson they learned was that it needs to be lived in to be properly maintained. So that's a big reason for the bed and breakfast so that somebody is always here to keep an eye on things and prevent it from relapsing, you know, so that a leak doesn't stay a leak. And of course, the bed and breakfast provides a steady source of income for all the maintenance costs that an old building like this still requires.
0: Sure. Well, it seems like anywhere a lighthouse... Anywhere where lighthouses have been converted into, uh, you know, uh, overnight accommodations of one kind or another, they've pretty much been successful. Uh, people seem to really love them, so I'm, I'm glad it. Uh, I'm glad somebody decided to do it there. It was a perfect uh, idea for the place, and it seems to have worked out really well. Let me ask you uh, your opinion on something, uh, or not so much your opinion is probably uh, what you what you've observed there. But has climate change affected the lighthouse much so far? And if so, what has been done or, or is being done to, uh, to kind of combat that?
2: Yeah, that's the biggest challenge that we face in terms of historic preservation. Two most obvious examples are Hurricane Irene and Superstorm Sandy. During Irene, we had water up to the front doorstep. And um, Sandy, which came the following year, we had six inches of water on the first floor. We stayed here during b- both storms so we were able to keep an eye on things and get things out of reach of the water and and be here to mop up afterwards and get things back in working order as quickly as possible. But that really showed us what the future is for the the lighthouse is that we're going to see more uh, storms like that in the foreseeable future. We're affected by those massive storm surges that come up the Hudson from the Atlantic with these uh, major hurricanes. So we're adapting the the property. After Sandy, we were able to get some funds that became available for historic properties damaged by the storm. So we're able to replace a breakwater that protects the seawall and add some additional riprap to the adjacent island. Our dock was also long suffering from getting hammered by these repeated storms as well as uh, ice damage. So we replaced our dock. Uh, we've new, moved utilities up higher so that our, uh, like for instance, our breaker box is uh, up out of the reach of the, the flood zone. So, you know, there's a limit on what we can do, but we're we're trying to make it easier for when the next storm hits uh, to be able to uh, recover from it and, uh, and minimize the amount of damage And we are seeing increasingly challenges with our access trail because our half-mile trail follows the shoreline and during certain tides will get flooded. And with these storms, it hammers the shoreline and and our trail is threatened with getting washed out. So maintaining public access is going to become increasingly challenging over the years.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I was going to ask you about the trail. I remember it was... It was wet, but passable when I was there. And I know sometimes it's been closed because of high tides, extremely high tides and things like that. So is, is that uh, apparently is, is that happening more often these days? Or does it have to be closed more often?
2: Well, we've added boardwalks uh, to some float prone areas. So it's actually mm-hmm. helped the situation. Yeah, But again, those boardwalks are vulnerable to storms with if we have pounding waves Uh, combined with high water, Uh, you know, for instance, just uh, this spring, we had to close for a couple of days while they reassembled a couple of sections of boardwalks that got unhinged uh, after a storm. So we're trying to adapt by, you know, adding boardwalks and bridges where necessary. We're doing shoreline plantings to kind of stabilize the shoreline and, and prevent erosion. But yeah, the, the, the tides are only getting higher, so we're going to yeah. see more of that. And, uh, you know, it, at some point, we just have to rely more on boat access than, than trail access, but we're not quite there
0: yet. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So could you uh, describe a uh, little bit about the accommodations themselves? I remember it being beautifully furnished. It's really nice inside. But for people who might be interested in staying there, what sort of accommodations are available?
2: Well we the house is furnished as it would have been in the early 20th century and the guest rooms are upstairs in the original keeper bedrooms. The station was built with uh, three bedrooms. We rent out the the two guest rooms and then the third room was turned into a little museum uh, room that uh, people can browse. Of course we provide the breakfast in the morning and uh, most guests just, return to town to get dinner in town. We just coach them about the tide and make mm-hmm. sure they have a flashlight for walking the trail after dark. Uh, but there's also a po- propane grill here and a picnic area out back if people want to do something uh, like a picnic for, for dinner instead. And of course, guests have access to the tower during their stay, which is uh, uh, a view that a lot of people enjoy. We have a a nice uh, view looking west towards the Catskills. So catching the sunset from the, the tower is
0: uh, always a favorite. I would think so. So we haven't talked about it, but your, your wife uh, is actually co-keeper with you. Would that be her, her title?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's uh, she carries other titles, but uh, <laughs> essentially she does um, work alongside me in a lot of respects. She's also the, the, uh, current president of the board of directors. Um, so she takes an active leadership role with the organization and, uh, yeah. And we, yeah, we kind of work together, uh, just, keeping after things. She likes to look after the plants uh, and, uh, she also likes to, uh, care for the trail, so getting outside and doing those things is, is, uh, something that she favors.
0: Sure. Now, do one or both of you cook breakfast for guests?
2: It's usually me. I'm, you know, the first up and out of bed in the morning. So I'm brewing the coffee and flipping the pancakes and laying out the, the breakfast for everybody.
0: Yeah. Any other specialties that uh, get served for breakfast?
2: Pancakes are a lighthouse tradition. The local historian commented that the keepers always had fixings on hand for, for pancakes And of course, uh, coffee was a big part of the job, so, but I also will often make French toast or waffles, something along those lines. And it's all atop an old uh, stovetop uh, from, I believe it's from the 1930s.
0: So we do everything the old-fashioned way. How does that stove operate? What fuel?
2: It's a propane. Okay. Uh, but it still has the old firebox on one side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the oven can be heated either with the firebox
0: or by propane. If somebody isn't staying there overnight, but they're interested in seeing the lighthouse, are there any sort of tours available for those people?
2: In the summer, on Sunday afternoons, we offer docent guided tours of the lighthouse from Memorial Day weekend through Labor Day weekend. We also okay. do uh, group tours by appointment. So sometimes we get school groups, uh, clubs who come out and we'll offer them tours. And we show off our little museum room and, and uh, take people up into the tower, give them a little bit of background on the history and the
0: lives of the keepers here. Yeah. What sorts of things are on exhibit in the museum?
2: Well, we're most proud that we have the original Fresnel lens on display. I don't even think it was here when you were visiting because it was only tracked down after that. Chad Kaiser with um, I know Chad. He's with the new Dungeness Lighthouse. Yeah,
0: he's been involved with the U.S. Lighthouse Society a lot too. And he's also a quali- one of the few qualified lampists in the country, uh, an expert on Fresnel lenses. And yeah, I know Chad. No, I don't believe that. Fresnel lens was on display when I was there.
2: Uh, we also had, you know, basically just like the, the number two service lamp that the keepers would have for their uh, use. We also have just some household lamps that were loaned by the, the family I mentioned earlier, the descendants of the Hawks, uh, that they used just for their lighting around the household. So we have mm-hmm. some of those old lamps that were in use, some of the old family photos from the Hawks. And then we also have objects and images related to the local waterfront, uh, like some of the industry models of the steamboats that used to frequent Saugerties, and also various old pieces of fishing equipment that came from a neighboring commercial fishing family. They they had an old net house, and we have a lot of items from that old net house, uh, like old carved wooden net floats and uh, various uh, items that they would use for repairing their nets. And then, of course, the the lens, which is a sixth order Fresnel lens that was originally up in the tower, dates to 1854. It was among the first lenses shipped over from France when the lighthouse board decided to uh, switch over to Fresnel lenses. And it was missing for many years during the uh, time that the lighthouse was vacant uh but chad Kaiser tracked it down to a naval base in Virginia, and they just had it as a display piece, and were kind enough to return it to the Coast Guard, avoiding a custody battle <laughs> mm-hmm. and then the Coast Guard has provided it to us on loan so that we could show what was cared for by all the keepers over the years
0: That's great that's that's so great that Chad found that and it got back to where it belongs. So one thing I was reading about lately uh, was that uh, uh, something about some outdoor performances done by what sounded like a really interesting theater group at the Lighthouse. Can you tell me about that? And is that something that's that will be happening again?
2: Sure. Arm of the Sea Theater is a local mask and puppet theater group that does a lot of work throughout the Hudson Valley doing environmental education and and, uh, historical education uh, around the river. And we partnered with them a few years ago for our 150th anniversary of the Lighthouse. And they developed a show telling the story of the Crowley sisters entitled Keep That Lamp Trimmed and Burning. Mm. And they uh, showed showed it several times uh, here in Saugerties. And they're going to do it again this summer. Uh, They're developing a property here on the creek uh, that they're calling the Tidewater Center. That's going to be their uh, home base. They're often on the road and touring, but this will be their uh, new performance and rehearsal space on the creek. And they're going to feature that same uh, lighthouse performance, uh, keep that lamp trimmed and burning all all summer long uh, at their new space.
0: So if people want to learn more about events that might be happening related to the lighthouse, but also about the accommodations, you do have a website, of course, which, which is...
2: Lighthouse.com.
0: Yeah, obviously they can Google Sogartys Lighthouse and find it pretty easily. Is there also a Facebook page for the lighthouse?
2: Yeah, there is. It's more just a placeholder. We don't really uh, keep up with right. that. But my wife does uh, post to Instagram. Okay. Um, fairly regularly, but they're going. People are going to find most of the news on our our website.
0: So it's obvious you enjoy living and working at the lighthouse you enjoy researching the history of the lighthouse is there any chance you might be writing a book or planning to write a book on it
2: there's certainly enough material to make a book uh between just all the stories that we've come across from the history and just uh, some of our own experiences but uh, yeah organizing it and assembling it is a is a whole different process but yeah yeah maybe one day I hope you so. Know, every, every winter, I think, oh, this will be the, the winter. i will have some time. But uh, <laughs> often the, the weather uh, makes other plans and <laughs> we get yeah. busy just keeping up with our regular chores and, and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I can certainly understand that, but I think you're the, the guy to do it if anybody's going to write a, a book on the history of that place. So i I'd, I'd love to see that. So I have one final question for you, okay? And this is for bonus points. All right. <laughs> Okay. And that question is, what has been your favorite thing or favorite things about your association with Socrates Lighthouse?
2: Well, it's where I met Anna, my wife, so it's hard to top that. (laughs) Um, So, But I think both of us enjoy the community that we know um, on the river, the neighbors that we have up and down the river, uh, the people that get out on the river and enjoy it. We all have this shared affinity with the water and it's a huge part of our lives. So it's it's a great, we've formed some great friendships that way, you know, through the clear water or uh, some of the other organizations that look after the river, you know, our friends that like to take out boats or go sailing. It's always nice to get an invitation to jump aboard the, their sailboat as they're, you know, heading out for the a little evening cruise or something like that. So I think that's probably the, the one thing that really makes it just a, a great place to be all around. It's you know not a, an isolating location. There's uh, plenty of visitors and some really good neighbors just a short walk away.
0: Well, it's a really beautiful place. I enjoyed my visit so much. I hope to get back there and... I think you and your wife and son and the conservancy are, are wonderful stewards for the place. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful example of a, a lighthouse where people can can stay overnight. There aren't that many of them. And uh, yours is, I think, one of the the prime locations for that. So thank you for all you do for the lighthouse. Thank you for spending this time with me today. And I hope I'll see you again there sometime. Thanks so much, Patrick.
2: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you and uh, thank you for sharing this story.
1: You can learn more about Socrates Lighthouse online at Socrateslighthouse.com. You can check rates and availability for the Lighthouse Bed and Breakfast right through the website. As of now, the rooms are completely booked through October of this year.
0: There are rooms available in November and December, and very soon they'll start taking bookings for 2023. But even if you're not staying overnight, it's a great place to visit.
1: Thanks as always to all the members, volunteers, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Check out uslhs.org to learn more about tours, the passport program, preservation grants, and everything else the society has to offer. Please remember that donations and memberships help support this podcast and all the preservation and education projects of the society.
0: If you listen to this podcast using Apple Podcasts or any platform that lets you post reviews, please rate and review us.
1: The anthropologist Elizabeth Kapu'uolani Lindsay once wrote, quote, True navigation begins in the human heart. It's the most important map of all, end quote.
0: On next week's episode of Lighthearted, we'll be talking with Lauren Nelson, the site manager of Fort Gratiot Light Station in Michigan. As always, thanks so much for listening and
1: keep a good light.